Welcome back to week six of the class where we're discussing the doctrine of conversion. Today we're going to be talking about yeah, implications of how we understand the doctrine of conversion, how that actually um, makes a difference in how we ought to share the gospel with people, how we ought to evangelize, how we ought to preach, all of those things. So before we get started, I'm just going to pray for us that the Lord might help us as we seek to understand how we might better share our faith. So let's pray this morning and then we'll jump right in. God, we thank you for the fact that um, though we've sinned against you, you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die a death that we deserved, to live a perfect life free of sin so that we might be able to stand before you. God, I pray that we would think rightly about best practices of sharing that gospel with others, God, that we would be emboldened as we leave here to share that, God, to not be afraid of man, but to fear God. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So on your handout, if you'll look to point one, you'll see just a quick question, who's in charge here? By that question, what we're trying to get at is Who's actually in charge of a person coming to Christ? A person being saved? Is it God being sovereign over salvation? I think we'd be quick to say yes. But there's a human element to it, right? God uses human means to accomplish that work. So who is actually in charge here? So as we consider the doctrine of conversion and the practice of Christian evangelism, yeah, we approach that seeming contradiction pretty quickly. So if God is sovereign to save all whom he elects, what's the purpose of our evangelism? Right? Is it not pointless? Right? If God does it all, what do we do? What about the opposite tendency, right? Sure, God has saved me, but now it's my responsibility to go and maybe single-handedly win the world for Christ, right? And if I don't, there are countless others who might perish because of my lack of zeal. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, refers to this question, this issue as an antinomy. He defines that as an appearance of contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. So maybe an example of an antinomy that you might have heard before is this phrase, that it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Right. It's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Right. The statement itself is undermined because it breaks the bounds that it has set for itself. But back to Packer's definition, note the important word at the beginning, appearance. There's an appearance of contradiction. Packer would not by any means claim that these two assertions, that God is sovereign in salvation and that we as humans are responsible to evangelize, that those are actually at odds together, or at odds against one another. They're not. Right? And the scriptures make that clear. However, he's just noting the difficulty that we have in reconciling the two just with our corrupted human faculties. Right? But I think that if we just spend a little bit of time looking at these two assertions, we'll come to find it perhaps a bit easier to understand than we previously thought. So friends, I'm not going to be going in depth on this first point, but I would encourage you to read more on it. Read Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. 
Read um, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. Read Evangelism by Max Stiles, right? Friends, just read your New Testament. Read the book of Acts. See how God is orchestrating all things together and how he's employing human agency to accomplish those goals. I encourage you to do that. Friends, let's look just at a, at a quick text that I think helps us succinctly see that the, both of these, that God is sovereign over salvation and that humans do have a responsibility to evangelize, how those coexist, and it's actually all part of God's plan. Let's look quickly at Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 11. Acts 18, 9 to 11. I'll read it and then we'll look at these two points. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Let's consider first the divine sovereignty of God. In these verses, we see that Paul, who was ministering in Corinth, received a vision from God. And in this vision, in the second half of verse 10, it says, I have many in this city who are my people. What do you think this means? Is he talking about the population of Corinth? Of course not. He's talking about people who will, in fact, come to be saved. Is God simply declaring that he's aware of the number of inhabitants? Of course not. In declaring that he knows beforehand how many are his people, he's confirming all those glorious things that are said about him, even like in a text like Romans 8.30, which says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? That whole spectrum picture of salvation how God has done it from beginning to end God knows precisely all who are his meaning all who will come to him in saving faith so in light of this disclosure to Paul what does he then bid him to do or to continue doing rather let's look at human responsibility Despite Paul being well aware that it is only the power of God that saves people from their sin, this in no way diminishes his evangelistic zeal. God exhorts him, even in verse 9 of that same passage, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you. There we have in the same verses, right next to each other, we're taught that God foreknows and chooses those who will follow him. And he simultaneously bids Paul to preach the gospel without fear. God has willed for our evangelism to bear the fruit of salvation. Not in every encounter, mind you, but in every encounter that the Lord has elected for salvation to occur. And he's actually elected that since before the world began. C.H. Spurgeon said it well. If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since he hasn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whatsoever believes, I know he's one of the elect. 
So we're not to be discriminatory in who we share the gospel with based on our assumptions of whether or not they're elect. Hmm. There's much more we could say about the interplay between sovereignty and responsibility, but for this morning, let's just look to consider four exhortations concerning how we ought to evangelize. So, how we ought to evangelize. We're going to be working primarily from a single text this morning. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6. So if you'll turn there, we'll be there uh, off and on several times this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read that for us whenever we're there. It reads this way. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first thing we're going to look at this morning, the first exhortation of how we ought to evangelize will be that second point on your handout called communicate the gospel plainly. Communicate plainly. Now this doesn't mean that we seek to be robotic or analytical, overly analytical or dry so that we come across like some kind of evangelistic cyborg. No, we're meant we're not meant to be perceived as lifeless bodies who are simply reading from a teleprompter or a script that we've prepared for ourselves. What I do mean to say is that the message that we deliver must be both precise and clear. There's no room for fuzziness or ambiguity or softened edges with the gospel. After all, if Christ is marred when we talk about him, perhaps it's not really Christ that we're talking about. If after speaking with a Christian coworker, all a person thinks that they need to be saved from is a lackluster social life, or a marriage that isn't all it was cracked up to be, or a drinking habit that they've been trying to kick. If that's all we tell them that they need saving from, or all that we imply that they need saving from, then they might be quicker to accept Jesus, quote-unquote. You're saying that if I accept Jesus, my life's going to get easier? Fine. Okay, I'll take him. How often are we guilty of offering a gospel presentation that more closely resembles a sales pitch than a summons to what the New Testament calls us to do? That's come and die. That's a harder thing to sell. 
We must always seek to be as precise, clear, and plain as we can when we're talking about matters of eternal significance. So Paul commends this method of sharing the gospel in chapter 4, verse 2, the second half of that verse, when he says, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The fact that Paul emphasizes his insistence on the gospel being delivered as an open statement of the truth naturally begs the question, in what ways can, in our own explanation of the gospel, how how can it be hidden or disfigured or marred? How can we corrupt that message to mean something totally different? You know, he actually tells us how in the A part of that verse, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Friends, this is what poor, even sinful evangelism looks like. Evangelism where sin is not mentioned. Where man's depravity is lessened. God's wrath is tamed. Our responsibility is non-existent. Paul would bid us to have nothing to do with these things. He absolutely refused to bend or warp the message either out of fear of rejection or for the applause of man. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. If someone's going to reject you for what you say or if someone's going to applaud you for what you say, those are not determining factors for what you say. So what's really the danger in sharing the gospel without emphasizing things like sin, wrath, repentance? Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, at least I'm, adva- at least I'm evangelizing, right? That's more than most people can say. Friends, the danger of sharing a false, go- false gospel can be seen in the topic of the class that you're sitting in, the doctrine of conversion. How are people actually converted? Dead to life. How does that happen? It doesn't matter how nice or well-spoken you are when you share your testimony. Nor does it matter how much your story may have affected the recipient emotionally. If the true gospel is not proclaimed, there is no hope for the unbeliever. There's no hope for them. The gospel alone, rightly conveyed, is the means by which God grants new life, new birth, new sight, new heart, new affections reorienting of all those things. If there's no repentance and faith as a response to the sharing of the gospel, there is absolutely, take it to the bank, no salvation. This is why we care about keeping the gospel clear, plain, and simple. I was talking with John Henderson this morning, and he even offered a a great uh, implication for this in understanding the doctrine of conversion. He's like, yeah, if we don't understand that, what we're going to gather together, the members of UBC, to do tonight uh, makes no sense. We're going to gather together to vote in people into membership of this church. And what does that convey? It conveys that we believe that they're Christians. And if they haven't really understood the gospel and we vote them into membership, like we are at risk every quarter of every year that we meet together to split this church in half. It matters. Eternally, but even in the life of our own church. Friends, so that we don't go about sharing the gospel in a disgraceful, underhanded way, as Paul would say it, we must become familiar and comfortable with 
what I'll call the definite content of the gospel. So the content of the gospel, that's that first sub-point that we'll look at. So Paul, in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4, states that the thing he wishes to proclaim to others more than anything is not some earthly man-centered wisdom or Paul's own sage advice, but the very gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he states something similar when he's, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It becomes clear as we watch Paul share the gospel that he does not have some loose-gripped, malleable understanding of how people are saved. Right? Now we're shown that there are some things that are specifically not the gospel. So again, let's just take some time to consider maybe a helpful method of organizing the content of the gospel and in internalizing it so that you might have it ready whenever the opportunity might arise. So whenever you, those of you that are members here, maybe when you did your member interview or perhaps you've heard it from the pulpit, there's a really easy way to have the gospel right here. God, man, Christ response. You heard that before? So God, the one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him. But we, man, have sinned and cut ourselves off from him. He can have nothing to do with sin. He can't be in his presence. So what did he do? But out of his great love, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come as king and to rescue people from their sin. That sin required a payment of death that Jesus actually accomplished on the cross for us. And before that, he lived a perfect sinless life that actually earned a credit of righteousness that we did not have. And so then he was raised from the dead. And all of the righteousness that Christ earned to all of those who would repent and believe in their sin, it's actually credited to them. And their sins were put on him and done away with at the cross. And then there's the response. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of those sins. And if we do these things, it's proof that we've been born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. That's the gospel. Quick. God, man, Christ response. So I just want to take maybe five minutes and everyone pair up. It'd be easier to do in twos if you need to be in a group of three, do it. And just out of maybe a habit of good practice, I want you to go through God, man, Christ response with your neighbor. Just share the gospel with them. Let's take about five minutes and do that.
Take about another 45 seconds to finish up. as we close up and come back together I hope that in that exercise was an encouragement to you just to be able to take time and verbalize the gospel that I pray most of you um, trust in to save you from your sin Hmm. it's a good exercise just to do often remember the gospel Hmm. so friends that was maybe the irreducible minimum of the gospel message God, man, Christ response. But let's look now quickly at the very heart of that gospel message in that next section. The heart of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we this is one of the best texts to look to to see what we call substitutionary atonement. All of our sin onto Christ on the cross. All of his righteousness earned as a credit with God, credited to our account. That great exchange. This is the very heart of the gospel. We see here both the method and the means by which Christ has done away with the sins of His people. And not only has He done away with their sins, but He's credited to them His very righteousness, earned through His sinless life. Friends, this verse helps us to remember in our evangelism that Christ is not primarily offering a better life or a more manageable level of stress. But He's actually done away with our sin. The sin that we so willingly commit against a holy God. Friends, this is your primary issue in life. That you sinned against God. Doesn't matter about when you're going to graduate, when you're going to get that next job, your next, when you're going to have kids, when are my kids going to start acting right, when are they, how am I going to save for retirement? It doesn't matter comparatively to this problem that you, someone created by God, has willingly, willfully sinned against God and that he's perfect in justice, perfect in righteousness, and he's going to right those wrongs one way or the other. And this is a heavy load to bear. But in equal measure of its heaviness is its joyfulness to know that that sin, that death sentence 
can be reversed. Someone's already died for it. It's been well put to try and charge you again for your sins. If you are in Christ, to try and charge you again would be like double jeopardy. It's already been taken care of. He has the receipts. He can show you. It happened here. It's already, you see, it's paid for. Friends, we rejoice in that. That's the heart of the gospel that we share with people. Not to fix temporal, earthly issues primarily, but to fix our issue that's our sin. So friend, let's move to our next point. We just talked about communicating um, plainly. Now let's talk about communicating honestly. So in our last point, we worked hard to make sure that we had the definite content of the gospel down pat. Now let's consider how we must also be honest in the expectations that we instill in those to whom we are evangelizing. So by this, I mean, did you share the true content of the gospel while simultaneously promising an unbiblical reality to follow? Yes, here's the gospel that Christ died for your sins, and now that you've accepted that, you'll never face trials or struggles again. Praise God. Is that what we're saying? This would be wrong. This would just be dishonest. It would be a lie. Friends, we need, help. we need to help people not only to hear the gospel, but to count the cost associated with the gospel. This is what we'll think about in that first sub-point, counting the cost. So what does it cost to be a disciple of Christ? Luke 14.27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Since Jesus is no stranger to using difficult imagery to convey spiritual realities. Following Christ is not a walk in the park as much as we like to think it is or talk about it on Instagram like that. The very nature of being a Christ follower is that you will certainly face trials of various kinds simply because of your master, who he is, what he's calling you to do. Think even, remember the rich young ruler, Matthew 19? He came to Jesus seeking to justify himself by declaring that he had kept all the commandments since he was young. And what did Jesus say? Great. It's great. Just go ahead and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. Give it to the poor and you'll earn a treasure for yourself in heaven. And of course we know what happened next. He went away sad because the cost of following Christ was too much for him. He couldn't give up all that he had. That just cost too much. So what then? Do we forfeit eternal life? To bring about more temporal pleasure? Of course not. We carry on by God's grace. Friends, it should actually be an encouragement to your faith when you suffer trials for Christ's name. It should assure and validate your profession of faith. After all, what man or woman in their natural state would ever agree to undergo scrutiny, hatred, embarrassment, or any number of other calamities just because? They seem like it's a fun thing to do. None would. Friends, the fact that you have the will to go through pain and hardship for the name of Christ is 
It's actually an evidence of your faith. It's an evidence of the grace of God in your life. Friends, God is so kind that while He bids you to suffer trials and to carry a cross, He also grants you in equal weight and measure the grace necessary to do so. Nonetheless, talking about the promised trials of Christ is difficult, which often results in us altering the message or altering at least the implications of the message. So that's going to be that second sub-point, ways that we're prone to alter the gospel. In this section, we're just going to primarily be talking through ways that the culture around us can tend to seep in and inform, yes, how we evangelize, but even more, how the world understands their situation. It's going to be number one, we tend to think that we're actually just okay with God. We'll just deny the fact that we are at enmity with God. There is perhaps no more offensive thing that you could say to someone in our modern, individualistic, self-affirming, egocentric society that we live in than there is something wrong with you. And not say it as a joke. Be able to look at someone and say, there's something wrong with you. We're taught from an early age that self-acceptance leads to happiness and fulfillment. But why is it that when we're left alone to think about ourselves and our situations in the only way that we and God know ourselves, why do we always end up feeling sad, depressed, or dirty? Perhaps it's because the truth of the matter is that we are dirty. From the fall in Genesis 3 to the call to be born again in John 3 to the recognition of our spiritual deadness in Ephesians 2 like we've talked about in weeks past, the whole Bible speaks volumes about our initial state apart from Christ. We are stained with sin, spiritually dead, haters of God. Our situation is hopeless and we are at odds with Christ unless we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. This is part of what makes the gospel good news. The reality of our previous state and the fact that it's so bad. That's what makes it good news. If we were neutral, if we were just on a a playing field, if it was like yeah, me and God are tight. Like, we're not great friends, but like, we're fine. No, it's, that would be somewhat decent. Yeah, okay, I have a new friend. God's my friend. No, that's not what we're talking about. It is such good news. To the highest degree we can possibly understand something to be good. Because our situation on the other end was so low. So bad. The the chasm was huge. And he has righted it in himself. Hmm. Number two, we think that God is only love. Might be another way that we distort the gospel. So to make myself extremely clear, God is love. I just want to say that. He is love perfected. Love personified. He is He acts in perfect love at all times and has never been close to unloving toward his children. 
However, this perfect love works in tandem with his other attributes. They don't cancel each other out. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath, his omnipotence, etc. The reality of all God's attributes coexisting together means that they each inform each other. So when God shows mercy and grace, it is not out of step with his justice and his wrath. When God executes judgment over his enemies, it is out of his great love for his own name, for his children. The issue that we run into so often is that those who espouse that God is love typically mean that since God is love, he better affirm me exactly as I am. No holds barred. Scripture scripture teaches a different means to be in a loving relationship with God. Not with self-affirmation or affirmation from God exactly as we are, but rather increasing holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So while we experience the kindness of the Lord every day, despite our conversion status, there will come a day when those who are in the love of Christ will be taken into that love forever in heaven, and those who are not will be taken out of that love forever into his wrath, hell. So yes, he is loving. And he will always be loving. But his love is not what everyone will experience forever. Number three, we think of Jesus primarily as our example rather than our substitute. We think of him primarily as our example rather than our substitute. So this point harkens back to the first week of this equipping class. Remember we talked about yeah, what is a new creation, right? It's someone who is new, not nice. Some nominal Christians employ all the right lingo and verbiage of Christianity while their hidden assurance is actually found in their performance of leading a moral life. Friends, this is the danger of treating Christ primarily as your example, which he is, rather than your substitute. It is the desire of the Christian to grow more into the image of Christ, but their final hope, the only thing they're banking on, is never their performance, but Christ's. That's an important distinction. If you're trusting in your own works, you're lost. If you're trusting in Christ, you're saved. That's about as simple a way to put it as I can. Friends, even this morning as we go to sing, I believe we'll sing a song um, called Not In Me. It's a great hymn. It says the following. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid. By Jesus' death, my weary load 
was born by him, and he alone can give me rest. Mm. So we're to communicate the gospel plainly and honestly. Now let's take a look at why we must share the gospel urgently. It's our third point, point number four on your handout. Communicate urgently. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist here is noting that time is not working in our favor. Even more so, it's not working in the favor of those who are still lost in their sins. The time that elapses today is time that we will never have again. We ought to evaluate the use of our time in light of the brevity of this life. If we truly believe that life is short and that the gospel is true and that judgment is coming, then we must share the gospel urgently. So our first sub-point, we'll kind of get to the heart of that. This is a matter of life and death. Back in 2 Corinthians 4, we see in the second half of verse 3, it reads this way, it, the gospel, Sorry, if it, the gospel, is veiled to those who are perishing. It is veiled to those who are perishing. Friends, I don't mean to be a downer. (laughs) I feel like I have been a little bit already this morning. But the reality is that every day people die and go to hell in their sins. This is a fact that should sober us and ignite, a, ignite in us the desire to tell anyone who would listen about the gospel. And hear me, I'm not saying that those who go to hell are innocent or that they did not uh, suppress the truth or that if only I had shared the gospel with them, they would have been saved. In all of these things, we trust in the sovereignty of God, that he is absolutely in control of all those things. He will save his own. However, we must not forget that we are the tools used by God to accomplish his work of salvation. Therefore, we must never grow tired of acting in this way. And friends, here's that second point. This is more of a practical implication for how we share the gospel message. The medium informs the message. This point is really just to appeal to you to not take the gospel and what it requires as a response lightly. I was talking with a few brothers just before we started class this morning, but recently I just came across a video from a certain um, Christian evangelical comedy website, whatever you want to call it. And um, they had an interview with Elon Musk, the guy, Tesla guy, you know. Um, and they talked for an hour and 40 minutes with this guy about business, about Christianity, about his own personal life, about blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the podcast, this is how they ended their conversation, by attempting to share the gospel with Elon Musk. Praise God, right? This was how they did it. One of the hosts said, we'd like to end our show today by asking you to do us all a solid. He's talking to Elon. There's a bit of a pause, and he says, kind of as a question, 
accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? There's an awkward silence that (laughs) gathers in the room. And he says, he follows up, just real quick, it's just a quick prayer. Want to do us a solid? And slowly giggles begin to fill, fill the room as that awkwardness escalates. Then Elon, after talking about how he notices, you know, great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus and, you know, okay, yeah, turn the other cheek, that's great, you know, do unto others as you have them do to you. Like, I agree with that. And after he says that, he finishes by saying, but if Jesus is out here saving people, I guess I won't stand in his way. And as soon as he says this, the room begins to erupt in applause with some saying things like, we got him. I think he just did it. It's humorous to talk about, but it's also devastating. Friends, this is the exact opposite of our disposition. It should be anyway. When we talk about matters of life and death. What they shared with him was not the gospel. Therefore, if if he were to trust in that decision to save him, he's going to hell still. That's the horrifying end of false conversions. We now inoculate people, tell them they're good, put the sticker on them, pat them on the back, on their way to hell. Those people didn't care enough about Elon's soul just to tell him the truth. Friends, may the same not be true of us when we're presented opportunities to tell of Christ. Friends, the medium of how we speak the truths of the gospel inform the message of the gospel that reaches the unbeliever's ear. Therefore, we tell the truth. We tell it plainly, honestly, bidding them to count the cost. Friends, now let's end by considering why and how we can share the gospel with great confidence in God. That'll be our last point. Communicate confidently. So once again, we'll look back to 2 Corinthians 4, this time the opening verse. Verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Having this ministry, by the mercy of God. This ought to produce great thankfulness and gratitude and humility in how we share the gospel. Friends, we are not the gifted whom God has selected to preach to the incompetent. Not by any means. God works in such mysterious ways that he would actually intend to use broken, unworthy sinners to accomplish his ends. This is one of those things that makes foolish the wisdom of the wise. There's nothing more confusing to the watching world than God Almighty choosing and using people like me or like you. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 illustrates this perfectly when he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Paul considers himself to be a jar of clay. Inside of it, 
is the treasure. You can drop the pot, the jar, and it can crack, and another one can come in its place and hold it just as well. It's the treasure inside, not the vessel.